This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. This past summer, I was in Alaska in a little coastal town called Seward, a gorgeous spot on the Kenai Peninsula, tucked between the oceans and some giant glacier-covered mountains. I was there looking for someone to talk to about grey whale migration. So I asked a friend in town for ideas, and he says, I don't know any grey whale people, but there's a guy named Dan you should meet. <laughs> he told me that Dan was the killer whale man in town. Orcas. Might as well, I thought. So we gave Dan a call and met him at my friend's place to chat. Dan arrived with a phone full of orca sounds. Let's just say, what I heard grabbed me right away. I've heard the sound of orcas and other whales before, mostly on TV documentaries, but these were different. All kinds of unusual noises were coming out of his phone. It was like these orcas were talking. From a mile away, you can know which family it is. And so it's kind of like Christmas, like opening the package of what's in here and putting down that hydrophone and knowing which pods are around. As he played them, Dan told me there's a lot more going on in these clicks and whistles than you might think. How their dialects, their languages evolve and even become part of orca family culture that's passed down. I wanted to learn more. Man, their ceremonies are beautiful. Their dances and songs are beautiful. Mm. They represent so much. Jay Julius is a tribal member near where I live in the Pacific Northwest. And from his perspective, there's something deeper going on in the conversations among these orca families. In all honesty and all reality, Chris, uh, it's a story of grief. The orca story is one of human misunderstanding and generational trauma. These creatures have been through a lot, especially in the coastal waters off Seattle and Vancouver. But it's also a story of celebration, family, and a sense of place. Exploring their chatty underwater world might just help us understand how they are communicating and what they are trying to say. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. It's good to see you. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that we pulled this off. It's the next best thing to being out on the water with you among the whales, I guess. So. <laughs> I'm here with Dan Olson. He's visiting Seattle from Alaska, so we jumped on the chance to meet up in person to hear more of his orca recordings. I study killer whales up in Alaska, in Seward, Alaska, Kenai Fjords National Park, and Prince William Sound. 
Dan spent a lot of time at sea in Alaska and down here in the Puget Sound, teaching Outward Bound, running whale-watching tours. And I've been studying killer whales since uh, roughly 2004, 2006, particularly the dialects, the acoustics, the calls that they make. When I met him in Alaska, the first thing I noticed was Dan's childlike curiosity for these killer whales, or orcas. But he's not new to this. He's been working with a small non-profit called the North Gulf Oceanic Society for almost 20 years. We do a lot of acoustics, which is my passion, and we have stations that listen all winter long. These listening stations are set up kind of like little mini recording studios. Each of them has an underwater microphone attached to them, a hydrophone, that's suspended about 10 feet above the ocean floor. And this hydrophone can detect a killer whale's call from up to 15 miles away. It's called passive acoustic monitoring. And most handy of all, once it's placed down underwater, it can be left there for months at a time. So it's listening every single day of the year. Dan tells me the story of how he got hooked on this strange obsession of eavesdropping on orcas. One time I was running a tour and had a hydrophone down in the water and there was one animal that was breaching and tail slapping and I put down the hydrophone and, and made a recording and, and heard the following calls. I'm going to play them for you and let you hear these. So I played this recording for the researchers and they immediately said, oh, that's one of the AT1s trying to get in touch with the rest of its pod. Ah. Just by listening to Dan's recording of the whale's call, the orca researchers knew exactly which pod the killer whale belonged to. Out of 30 different pods in the Gulf of Alaska, that's over 900 whales. And I was like, no way, there's no, like, that's impossible. But then it turned out, uh, I left, ran into two more. Half hour later, all three animals were together. And that was the moment that I learned that you could know the families by their, by their dialects. Know the families by their dialects. At the time, this was back in 2004, he was just dabbling, recording the orcas whenever he had the chance as a whale-watching guide. But since then, he's become an expert on orca acoustics in Alaska. So I know you've got some orca calls, some sounds with you. What have you got? What can you play for us? I have this pod I have to play for you that's really incredible. It's, um, it was the AE pod, and they're kind of a funny pod to begin with. <laughs> this pod truly sounds like aliens. Whoa, yeah. Each orca pod that Dan studies is named, and each has its own family call. So this alien sound is one of a kind. It's only used by members of the AE pod. These are the sounds they're using to stay connected with each other. There are other pods that make calls that may sound slightly similar, but not exactly the same. 
And Dan tells me, in the orca world, opposites attract. So when orcas are looking for suitable mates, they gravitate towards others with calls that are very different from their own family calls. So we think they mate with the sexy foreign accent. (laughs) Really? (laughs) They might hear something miles away from a, a different part and be attracted to it. Scientists think it could be a way for orcas to promote genetic diversity. Looking for mates from outside the immediate family could help avoid genetic inbreeding. Researchers like Dan study these calls and try to record and remember each one of them. Because once he can recognize the song, he can recognize the pod. And he doesn't even have to see them to know that they're around. Orcas are extremely intelligent mammals. Take their brains, for example. They are huge. They have the second largest brain of any animal in the world. The sperm whale takes first place. Those brains have significant folding and twisting, way more than our brains. This increases their capacity for advanced connections. Orcas also have way more neurons in their brains, double the number we have. All of this makes their cognitive capacity almost impossible for us to even comprehend. These are brains that are just wired differently. But Dan's got an analogy that helps us understand how they see their environment. Imagine for a second you're walking down through a park and you you know those times you just know a bird's flown over. Mm -hmm. You didn't see the bird, but it flew between you and the sun. And that change in lighting just for a second, you didn't even see the shadow, but the the lighting from the sun just changed briefly for a minute. As these killer whales are swimming, you have, you have noises, beaches all the way around them, and then one of their family members swims in between them in a sound source and makes a little bit of a shadow like that. And so their spatial awareness is off the hook. That's fascinating. When, a, when the next bird to fly across the sun, I'll think of it in a whole different way now. That's really cool. What's the next one you got? This is one of my favorite recordings to listen to. I fall asleep to this. You can hear echolocation and then some sporadic calls from the AJs. You're like the uh, the Orca DJ, Dan. <laughs> you ever thought of getting T-shirts or something like that? And again, these are family calls that belong to that family. So mechanical. Part of what may sound like a boat to you is actually echolocation. You're hearing a. Oh yeah, that's not the engine. So the tap 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 tap. Yeah. That's them hunting. Yeah. Echolocation is something you've probably heard of in whales, bats, and other species. Dan describes it as how an orca gains information, perhaps about each other, from the echoes that bounce back. It's how they hunt fish. They might even be able to tell if a family member has broken bones or is pregnant. Basically, highly advanced spatial awareness. But when it comes to communicating with each other, they create the other sounds the ones that sound like this. (laughs) 
All the sounds for echolocation and for calls to each other are created by lips in their blowhole. So inside the blowhole, you can imagine all the toothed whales just have one blowhole, whereas the baleen whales have two. Inside the one blowhole, you still have two nasal passages. Inside their nasal passages, they have sets of fleshy lips. And if you think about playing, making a buzzing sound out of your lips, like... It's probably probably physiologically similar to that. And because they have two sets of lips, they're able to make two different sounds at the same time. That's called a biphonic call. We can play one of those for you. It's really interesting. Now, this is a a family-specific call, and it's a biphonic call, meaning one animal is making a low-frequency and a high-frequency call at the same time. Wow, that sounds like a dolphin. (laughs) It is a dolphin. (laughs) That's one animal making the high and the low bit. The high and low frequencies help orcas stay in touch when there are ships around, a huge factor that disrupts whale communication. It's a bit like having to shout over the din in a noisy pub. The low frequency goes out all in all directions and the high frequency only goes out forward so if i'm facing you you hear both if i'm facing away you only you only hear the low frequency bit so a, a calf listening to its mother would know if she's facing it or facing away you were just doing that with the mic it's like so so here you sound sort of deep and resonant and then if i was to turn away from the from the mic you can is this right and they would still hear the low frequency call but not yeah. the high frequency call not to mention then high frequency with a very short wavelength, absorbs in plankton quickly, and it doesn't travel as far. So the low frequency travels a long ways, the high frequency doesn't. So this two-tone call allows all these different ways for the calves and mothers to stay in touch and, and know where everyone is and how far away they are. It's important for the calves and mothers to stay in touch because orcas live in a matriarchal society. The females are in charge. They hold the primary power positions and have the authority. Orcas share calls from generation to generation through the mothers and grandmothers. In this way, they create a family culture. Just like in humans, the things that we learn in a society over long periods of time, they teach. They pass on knowledge, voices, sounds, down through the generations. I've got a couple clips that show a a mom calling first and then um, a calf imitating afterwards, which shows how how they learn the calls, but also just it's cute. Oh, I love that. Yeah, let's hear that. And of course, these are important calls. They're the calls that belong to the family only. So to maintain cohesion with the whole pod, the whole family, you have to perfect that call and make it like your mother makes it. So we'll listen to some of these. You're, again, you're going to hear the mother first and then the calf imitating the call. How cute is that? That is so sweet. Can you do that again? Yeah, here's another one. Oh, <laughs> I could listen to that all day. 
The calls of pods can evolve over time with these really subtle changes. Sometimes it's just the little details that matter. We had a pod called the AK pod that swam together in the early 90s and have been swimming separately now. And so now you have the AK2 pod and AK6 pod. The AK2s do this that swoops out at the end, and the AK6s do a little hiccup at the end. Huh. And that difference appears to be consistent over the last five or ten years. And so it's, it's a cultural evolution of that call. It's what we call cultural drift. Cultural drift, or a cultural change over time. The grandmothers from the original pod were once sisters. They swam together. But when each grandmother split up into two separate pods, the call that they once shared slowly evolved into two slightly different calls, which were then passed down to the calves in that pod. The calves in each family mimicked their mothers and grandmothers, solidifying the new versions of each call, continuing the family voice. They're no longer swimming together with their great-grandmother grandmother to mimic those calls. Now they have their own grandmothers who used to be sisters, or are sisters, but don't swim together anymore. Hmm. Those calls get uh, get slightly divergent. That's interesting. I have uh, American kids, right? And they both have very American accents as opposed to mine, right? You know, as an immigrant. and uh, But my son every once in a while will pop into a bit of an English accent from me, you know, but he's that next generation of losing that. And if he was to have kids, it would all get watered down on down the, through the generations. It's similar, is it? In orcas. Yeah, 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 sure. It's, it sure is. It's part of this this traditional learning through generations is maintained by the survival of a, a mother or grandmother. So not only do the grandmothers and mothers pass down their family calls, but they pass down other pieces of their family culture, all kinds of information that's critical to their survival. Like grandma knows where the best salmon spots are, where places are safe or dangerous, how to behave in certain situations. It's actually been shown that if you have a calf born into a pod, if that calf's grandmother still alive, the survival rate is higher than if grandmother's not around anymore. When a grandmother orca can live up to 80 years, there's a lot of information that's passed down. I was raised by my grandma. Her name was Snina, and my grandfather was Watatlam, which is a name I carry now. Jay Julius is a member of the Lummi Nation, the people of the sea. Back home, here in Washington State, there is another perspective to explore, one that's very different to Western science. From those who have shared these waters with orcas for thousands of years. Do you think there is some kind of connection between Coast Salish people, Lummi people's knowledge and memories of this place and the memories that orcas have as well? Most definitely, without a doubt. Without a doubt, our story is their story. Their story is our story. What is this shared story? 
between the indigenous peoples and orcas here, just what is being passed down? It's a connection we'll explore after the break. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. seen it from the water plenty of times but i've never driven on orcas island but i know every beach i know i've 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 walked it i've fished it we're at larrabee state park overlooking bellingham bay as a member of the lummy tribe jay has spent time in these waters among the orcas ever since he was two years old I've fished side-by-side in my family for a couple of hundred generations has fished side-by-side with Quithalmachtin in our language, means killer whale, orca, blackfish, whatever English calls it. They're our relations under the sea, our relatives under the water. Could you say the name of them again in your language? Quithalmachtin. Can I try that? Yeah, absolutely. Qua? Qua. Thal. Thal. Michtin. Michtin. Quithalmachtin. Quithalmachtin. Man, their ceremonies are beautiful. <clears throat> their dances are beautiful. Their songs are beautiful. Mm. They represent so much. They're, if we could only... We always want to understand a little bit more as human people, but we can see it. We can feel it. Do you and feel like their cultures and traditions are similar to <clears throat> yours? Absolutely. We learn a lot from them. Our ceremonies include giving thanks for salmon making sure the salmon are pointed north where they were going as we fillet them and enjoy them. Our monuments include Kutalmachte, salmon, salmon woman, mothers. And the mothers lead their tribe, right? The mothers are the matriarchs of the pods. So yeah, absolutely similarities. I can tell though, for Jay... There's another layer, beyond the similarities his people share with orcas, like the food they eat and their strong family bonds that span generations. There's something else, something deeper. I can sugarcoat it with beautiful stories of yesterday. But in all honesty, and when you think about it, and, and we stop looking at them as this magnificent being in the water, but we view them as you know, something that is a family and might be underwater in a different world. Their story is exactly the same. Their traumas are are exactly the same. Their existence is held up by a fine line right now. And that's our reality. I'm on the brink of extinction. And, And it may not sound okay to hear that, but when the salmon disappear, I disappear. And the salmon are disappearing in and around Puget Sound, the Salish Sea. And because of that, the southern resident orca population is in trouble. They've been on a dramatic decline for 20 years. Today, there are only 73 of them left. 
One factor is that as the ocean warms, Chinook salmon habitat is moving north. But the pods don't automatically know to follow the fish, and perhaps they don't want to. They belong here, where they have like a cultural sense of place. It makes me wonder, what do the mothers and grandmothers tell their calves about staying put? About staying in a place that's overcome with dangers, but rooted in thousands of years of history? It's a fascinating thought, isn't it, you know, that a mother might be communicating something different to her calf these days than she might have done 50 years ago Absolutely. in her life, right? The dangers and the pitfalls and how to be around humans or avoid humans or where you're safe and where you're not. It's a changing world for them and, and humans. And They still avoid places. They avoid bays where they were rounded up. Yeah, absolutely that communication takes place. In humans, it's called intergenerational trauma. When the survivors of a traumatic event pass down their trauma to future generations, it begs the question if it is true of these emotionally intelligent whales too. Orcas are known to suffer trauma, their cortisol levels have proved it. And scientists don't know if they pass that trauma on down through the generations, but if they do, it's this population that might show it. Research has revealed that orcas have parts of their brains that are more physically developed than human brains. And those are the parts of the brains that have to do with language, emotion, and memory. The 60s and 70s brought unimaginable trauma to the orcas. Dozens of them were captured. In the summer of 1970, a group of aquarium owners rounded up more than 80 orcas in a place called Penn Cove, not far from Seattle. They separated the young orca calves from their mothers. Five orcas drowned in the nets. Seven were captured and put into captivity for display in aquariums. And some of those separated from their families were the grandmothers, the ones who passed down the family culture. All of the orcas captured in Pencove that summer died within five years. Except for one. Her name is Tokatai, or Skelly Chuktanot in the Lummi language. She lives in Miami at the Sequarium where she was sent over 50 years ago. She learned this song from her mother as a baby, and she's still singing it decades later. Those places where the whales were rounded up and calves taken into captivity, Jay says they still stay away from them to this day. So yeah, they, uh, they remember. And when you experience a trauma as a nation, as a tribe, as a people, and I'm talking you too in the audience, when you experience something, subconsciously something happens and, uh, and it's passed down and the memories are passed down and the trauma's passed down. Jay says the trauma that he sees the orcas experiencing is the same thing his own family members went through not that long ago, starting with the arrival of European settlers in the West. 
My uncles and aunts went to boarding schools in Oregon. I don't know if you can imagine your kids, whether you like it or not, being stripped from you as a father and a mother by the age of five Mm -hmm. and you not being able to see them again. And while they're gone, they're not allowed to speak the language you speak. They're not allowed to believe what you have taught them and what has been a part of your life since the beginning of time. So it's similar. Coming into this conversation with Jay about orcas, I wasn't expecting a story of grief and trauma. But that's because I've not been part of a culture that's shared all of this deep history in this place, with the whales, the bad and the good. Jay tells me about a moment he had with his grown daughter recently. They were leaving by boat to their seafood market on a nearby island. We're on our way out and she says, have you seen my spirit animal? And I said, actually I haven't, I haven't seen him lately. She goes, well, we're going to see him today. There were some other boats out there, including some whale-watching boats, and all of a sudden, they all turned around and started moving towards Jay's boat. A moment later, he looks down into the water, and there's an orca. Then another, and another, right up under the bow of his boat. And they pause and peer up. My daughter's standing up top, videoing, and it turns its head and looks up at her really slowly and goes down, and she starts crying quietly. And I think everybody, including myself, and obviously my daughter, we say the same thing. It's just, oh my God, wow. It strikes me that there's like an unspoken language between Jay and the orcas, one that seems as hard to describe and understand as the language of the orcas themselves. They've taught us how to fish. They teach us community. They teach us love. They teach us how to grieve. And they belong here. I may be indigenous to this place, but I don't... Uh, um, uh, I don't belong as they do. Through his recordings, Dan Olson understands the family bonds too, and how those bonds could help all of us relate to orcas. Part of the mission for me is, is to help people understand that these aren't just random animals doing random things. These are families with life stories and experiences and trauma and and successes and joy with each other and their families. And perhaps things to share. Something Dan also ponders as he listens to their calls. That would be an interesting thing to know is if they had something to say to us, what would it be? I have to imagine they would ask us uh, if we could fight a little bit harder because they don't have a voice. They can't communicate with the human species that are creating these Um, this genocide on their people in 16 decades blink of an eye their world is just uh, gone
It's a few days later, and I'm in my office. I can see the bay from here, near where the orcas spend time. And I can see the Lummi Nation reservation, where Jay lives. Since talking to him and Dan, orca stories seem to be everywhere. Everyone I meet seems to want to tell me their killer whale experience. It's been really strange. But in some ways, not surprising. We know for a fact that orcas are talking to each other, but maybe they are talking to us too. Perhaps it's time for us to listen, to really listen. There's so much to be gained by communicating with empathy and consideration. Maybe that's what the orcas are trying to tell us. Special thanks to Deborah Giles, Julie Trimmingham, and Mike Stewart. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by the people who work in it, love it, protect it. Check out our Instagram at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle, and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. Our producers are Lucy Suchek and Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for the kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Mark Wilkins and Rebecca Badger, Bob Yellowlees, Barbara Stolman, and Annie Mize. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti Boyle, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggin Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm Chris Morgan. If you enjoy the wild, please spread the word. We tell these stories to reach and inspire as many people as possible. Thanks so much for listening and take good care. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.